Turn with me to Psalm 84. If you listen to our midweek podcast that we do, we always cover the sermon from last week, dive into it a little bit more, and I'd said it that this week that we would be in Psalm 85 today. So if you studied Psalm 85, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do it. I'm going to do Psalm 84. Normally I stick with my plan, but I changed my plan because I didn't understand my plan this time. I said, why am I doing Psalm 85? I'd rather do Psalm 84. Uh, Psalm 84, I think, will be a little better fit to our series. We've been focusing on the Psalms of the Sons of Korah. Uh, Psalm 84 is another one of those Psalms, as was Psalm 85. Uh, but if you recall, and maybe you will, maybe you won't, we started in Psalm 42 and 43. We did those two together, and it really is a good bookend. Psalm 84 is with Psalm 42 and 43. If you remember, in Psalm 42... Uh, verse 1 and 2, it says uh, some famous verses here. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? If you remember, there was a longing in this psalm for God, but not just for God, but to desire to worship God and to worship God with, with the people of God. The psalmist, for some reason, was a, was a way, maybe because of persecution or whatever it could have been, but was away from the house of God and just wanted so desperately uh, to be there, to be in the temple worshiping with God's people. And in Psalm 84, what we see today is some similarities, and I want us to go through it pretty much verse by verse, but the psalmist will talk about the beauty of the house of God and how, how he longs to be there in the house of God Again, and it seems again as if the author of this psalm is away from the temple, away from Jerusalem for some reason, and not able to worship uh, with the people of God in the house of God. Again, maybe in captivity, maybe on the run, who knows. Uh, some people would say that David wrote this psalm, which would make sense uh, as we look at verses 8 and 9, and you'll see that there. But one of the issues with David being the author is David never saw the temple there's a lot of talk of the temple there. And so some people say, well, maybe this wasn't David. Uh, but either way, uh, I don't know if that's extremely important that we know who the author is. It still has the same truths in it. And so like I said, I, I want to go through this psalm in sections, pretty much verse by verse. We'll, we'll group some verses together, uh, but not many of them. So follow with me. I want to read the first two verses first. It says, How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. It's interesting how in the first verse, the psalmist describes the dwelling place of the Lord of hosts as, as lovely. The loveliness of the house of God. And the question is, is why is it lovely? Is it because it's beautifully made? Which I'm sure it was. Is it lovely because the people who are there? Probably not. <laughs> what makes this place so lovely to the psalmist is the fact that God is there. It's where God resides. And the way he speaks of God in this first verse is as the Lord of, of hosts, the general of the armies of heaven. So he talks of God here. So there's a protection even that you'll see as we can continue on, but the psalmist reflects on how how lovely the house of God is. And so maybe just some fond memories in the house of God, maybe even thinking about those. 
I don't know. You'd recall maybe when we looked at Psalm 42 and 43, I had you think about places you long for. And maybe it is home. Maybe it's a place you grew up, whatever it might be. Maybe it's a place you vacation at. But you know that feeling of longing to be there and the enjoyment of being there and the memories that are attached to there. And there's some of that here in this first verse, but mainly, again, it's lovely, and the psalmist wants to be there because this is where, where God is. This is where they would go to sacrifice and to seek forgiveness, and God was there to give forgiveness to the people of God in the temple then in verse 2, we see this longing to be in the house of God. It's almost obviously using poetic language, but it's just saying, my soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. This, this longing to be in the, in the house of God, his, his relationship with God is such that he, he just longs to worship God. He, he wants to worship him in the temple, and again, with the people of God, right? Just this, this longing and this desire. Now, again, you might recall I asked this question in Psalm 42 and 43, and it needs to be asked again. But do you feel this way at all to be in the house of God and with the people of God, with the church of God that God has put you with as Sunday draws near or as Sunday ends? I can't wait to be with them again to to worship God together, to, to sing with one voice to our God the, the truths of, of God's word. Is this something within you that, that dwells within, that as Friday comes and Saturday comes, this, this looking forward to, or do you fall into the trap, is I look forward to Friday night, I look forward to Saturday. Sunday I have to do this. I think we all fall into that trap, don't we? And the question probably is why? Why do... Why do we fall for that? Why does that happen? Why do we not have this sense like the psalmist to, to long to be with the, with the people of God? I know for me, it's sin in my life. For me, it's selfishness. For me, it often falls to a, a consumer mentality. Is that what the church is giving me isn't necessarily what I want. I want something else. I want something more. Again, for me, most often, it would be laziness. Seems so easy, does it not, to sleep on Sunday? I don't know what it is. On Saturdays, pop up. On Fridays, just pop up. And sometimes even frustratingly, it's like I could sleep in today and I'm awake. Never happens on Sunday. Never in my life does that happen. It seems like Sunday is just so smooth asleep. The alarm goes off and you think, oh my gosh, It'd be great to just sleep a little more. Doesn't the Bible say something about rest on Sunday? And so just laziness of taking what is, if you come to Sunday school, a decent chunk out of the day, right, to come here. And I can think of a lot of other things at times that might be better. Yet when I start to think about Christ, when I start to think about Jesus and I'm in his word like I should be and I'm being reminded of what he has done for me. Right? I'm reminded of where he took me from and where he has placed me now. All of a sudden, it does become much clearer my need to worship him. And not my need just to worship him by myself, 
but how the Bible is always talking about our need to come together as believers and worship him with his people, united in him to sing songs of praise to him. And that's what this author is wanting. I've met a lot of people in my life who have longed to worship God with the people. And you know what, sadly, a lot of times, it's older people who are shut in in their home because they can't be here. Or it's people in the hospital who've had a long stint in the hospital. And you go and you visit them and you talk to them. And it's amazing how often they say, you know, I just, I want to be so badly back at church. And that's something that I take for granted. I'm gonna guess it's something you've took for granted in your life. Where we don't understand this need and and what we're doing here and how much, yes, we should be worshiping God and that needs to be our focus, but then how much God does in our lives as we're here gathered together and we take this for granted. And the psalmist here maybe took this for granted and now he's away in captivity and all he longs for is not the comfort of his home, not the comfort of his own mattress to sleep on. What he longs for is to be with the people of God in the beauty of the house of God singing songs to the living God, with the people of God. Doesn't end there, verse three. He says, even the sparrow finds a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may lay her young at your altars. O Lord of hosts, my King and my God. It's interesting, you know, you think about the temple and how it was built and there was a lot of openness, a lot of open air. And so no doubt in parts of the temple, there were birds. There were birds flying around. And so maybe you could put your mind to this psalmist where he was sitting in the temple and he would see how the sparrows would build their nests in the little cracks and the crevices and in the corners of the buildings and by the pillars. And they would lay their eggs in these nests and raise their young in these nests and not even knowing, not even knowing that the place where they have done this is right next to the altars where sacrifices are taking place, right next to the place to where God meets with his people, the the holy of holies there. Yet God doesn't strike them dead. God doesn't force the birds to get out, even though I'm sure people did oftentimes. All right, get out of here, trying to get them away. But the psalmist is reflecting on how even the sparrow finds a home in the house of God and is reflecting on the openness of God. A worthless sparrow in the temple, finding comfort and peace in this temple. And it's a reminder to the psalmist of how in God's house, we all find room in a place in the temple of God, a place where we can find rest, a place that we can call home. And why is that? Well, for us, it's because of the work of Christ, we have a home. We have a home here with the people of God, and it's, it's very significant for us that even the insignificant can find a home here. That's something that we stand on, isn't it, as a church and as Christians? James has to address this. Uh, Paul has to address this to the Corinthians. Uh, Don't just let the rich walk in and give them a place of honor. That's not what this is about. We all come in here gathered together, rich, poor, low, and high, and we come under here how? Under the banner of Christ, all saved by his grace all on an equal playing field, all finding rest in the same Savior who loves each of us the same way that would lead him all the way to a cross. And these birds remind 
the psalmist, the openness of God there and the love of God, even for the insignificant in his temple. So that leads him to verse four. The psalmist would write, blessed are those who dwell in your house, ever singing your praises. Knowing what God has done for us in Christ causes us, at least scripturally, to what? To, to want to sing. To want to sing his, his praises. And what is, what is driving the singing? Notice, it's the goodness of God. Not the melody, not the tune, not the quality, not the genre, but it's the goodness of God that is driving the praise to God. We'll be focusing that over the next few weeks as we do a series on worship here in the fall. But it's a, it's a house filled with singing, and the singing, again, is pointing to praise, and so there's, there's an excitement in the air in this house. There's a, a jubilance. Like you, you come into this temple, outside might be tough, Outside might be rough. You might be like that widow. You don't have much. But there's a joy in giving all when you come to the house of the Lord to worship him and to praise him. Why? Because of what he's done for you. Right? For what he's done for you. He saved you by his grace. He's, he's took you from your sin and your wretchedness and he's pulled you up out of the pits of hell and placed you where? The seat next to him at his table where he feeds you, where he loves you. And as you think about this, as the psalmist thinks about this, the question really is, how can I not sing to such a good God? How can I not praise such a good God? And we just see the desires of the hearts of the psalmist wanting to be with God and to sing with the people of God to God. So then it continues on in verse five. Blessed are those whose strength is in you and in whose heart are the highways to Zion. There's a commitment here to the house of God from the psalmist. And he's saying for the people of God, there's this commitment here. Their heart is directed where? It's always directed to the house of God, to Zion. At all times and in all situations, all of their strength, they know, comes from the Lord. And because of this, they can travel through this world anywhere and get to the house of the Lord, to be focused on the house of the Lord. And that's where verse six kind of gets scary and is pointing to because in verse six it says, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The early rain also covers it with pools. Now there's some discussion here about the valley of Baca. Is this a, a real place? Is this a fictional place? And there's some discussion to be had, but there's no doubt that we know what is pointing, being pointed to here. This valley of Baca is representing a place of dryness, a place of of barrenness, a, a place of, of great trouble. And it seems like the people of God, in order to get to the house of God, have to travel through the valley of Baca, the valley of dryness. But what is that valley like, it says, for the people of God? There's difficulty, sure, there's struggle. But it says, as they go through the valley of Baca, they make this place of dryness what? A place of springs, now, this is crazy. There's, there's joy in the troubles as they venture to the house of God. There's, there's joy there still in the midst of dryness, barrenness, and difficulty. And what is, what is driving them? What is, what is sustaining them? Well, it's, 
the beauty of the house of God. Their eye is set on the prize, as Paul would say. They have a goal fixed in their mind, and as they walk on the road to get to the house of God to worship with the people of God, the beauty of God, oh, this dry place is nothing compared to where I am heading. This dry place is nothing compared to what I'm about to get to do, and that is worship God with my whole heart, soul, and mind. You see this in verse 7. They go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion as they travel together on this road and they hit these difficult paths. Their strength from strength appears when before God in Zion. They think about the house of God and what they are about to do. And nothing is going to stop them from getting there. Nothing is going to stop them from going to be able to worship God because their strength is found in the Lord, in the God of Zion. Now, as we get to verses eight and nine, it, the psalmist seems to take a, a weird turn here. There seems to be a, a twist because up to this point, everything has been plural. We're going to do this. We're excited about doing this together and worshiping. Now, all of a sudden, it gets, it gets singular. Because verse eight and nine says, O Lord, God of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God. Look on the face of your anointed Here we see in verse eight that even being absent from the temple, the author knows that he can pray to God. It's not something where he can just commune with God and talk with God just at the temple. He's obviously away from the temple, but he's praying to God, seeking God's face. And what does he lean on here? As he prays to God, he leans on God's covenantal love. Because he doesn't say the Lord of hosts again, the the God of the armies of heaven. No, he, he says, oh God of Jacob. And so he's talking about that steadfast covenantal love that God has promised to his people Israel here. And he's saying, oh God of Israel, hear my prayer, being one of Israel. You said you would hear us, you said you are our God, so so hear my prayer now. And he's leaning on the promises of God as he has a request to God. And in verse nine, we see what his request is. He prays, for the Savior of Israel. Behold our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed, he says. Now in the context here, the psalmist is praying for the king. And these would be the verses that people would hold to to say this is obviously a psalm written by David. Because he's praying for the king. Do you remember in 1 Samuel 16, do you remember learning as even a child when David was chosen? You remember when David was chosen? All of his brothers go before and none of them pass. No, 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 none of these. Do you not have any other kids? Are you sure? Yeah, we got one, but he's, no. Let me see him. Let me see him. David comes and gets paraded. You remember there was an anointing that took place, an anointing of oil. This was a separating, David saying, I have chosen this as my anointed, my my king. This is going to be the king of Israel, the king of my people that that I have promised. And this is where people's minds would go as they read this psalm on the anointed one. Bless the anointed one. And what's being asked here? The psalmist knows that if the king of Israel is blessed by God, 
then that's going to overflow to the people of God, the nation of God. Because Israel should have a, a good king, not, not one who hoards it all for himself, but a, but a good king that takes the blessings of God and bestows it on the people of God. And so this king of Israel would protect them. This king of Israel would give them safety, would give them security. This king of Israel would give them a land that would be their own possession. This is what is promised, and this is what is on David to be this king. And so there's prayers for the king. Bless the king. Give the king success because if the king has success, then we the people have success. But we know that as hard as David would try, this just couldn't be accomplished perfectly under him. And so within this psalm, we also have a messianic prophecy here where Israel would long for the protection, the safety, the security, and a land of their own that would last forever. Not just for some years, but forever. They wanted a king that would overthrow. They wanted a king that would rule and reign with justice. They wanted the truly anointed one. What Israel hoped and longed for was the true prophet, priest, and king. That's what they long to have. In Matthew chapter 16, in verse 13 and 17, Jesus is talking with his disciples. And it says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, ah, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Then he asked them a real pointed question. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Ooh, that's a tough question, ain't it? What does the world say that Jesus is? There's probably tons of answers out there. Some, this answers. Some say he was a prophet. Some say he was a teacher. Some say he was a rabbi. Some say he was a good guy. Some say he was fictional. Then Jesus asked that pointed question, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, of course, speaks up. He replies, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Now, this is an important section of scripture because I just told you what Israel was waiting for. They're waiting for perfect peace, perfect protection, perfect security in a land that is theirs forever. This is what they are waited for, for the anointed one, the Messiah. That's what they're waiting for. And it seems as if most of Israel does not see that in Jesus. They see something else, a good teacher, a prophet, maybe John the Baptist, maybe Jeremiah, maybe Elijah. But Peter says, you're the one that Psalm 84 was speaking of. You're the anointed one. And Jesus' answer, answer is what's so important. He doesn't say, oh, calm down, man. Nah, I'm just flesh and blood like you, Peter. He doesn't say that. He says, blessed are you, Peter. Why? Because it isn't in your own intelligence that you thought this. It's not because you know the scriptures so well that you're seeing the truth. 
He says, flesh and blood could not see this, but your eyes have been opened, Peter, and you speak the truth. At this point, Jesus takes the reins of the anointed one. He's claiming to us that he is what Psalm 84 is talking about here. Our shield, our God, the anointed one. He accepts the title. So as we read this psalm and we understand more and more about the house of God and its blessings, we must understand this psalm as New Testament believers as it flows through the anointed one that is Jesus. We can't look at it in any other way. The loveliness of his house is why? Because Jesus is here with us. I don't know if you grasp that all the time. I don't know if I grasp that all the time. When we gather here together to worship, do you know Jesus is here with us? And it's beautiful. This is for churches that are magnificent looking. When they honor him truthfully, Jesus is there with him. But it's the same for Pastor Peter, who we saw a little bit ago, who meets on the dirt floor next to a tree with no building over his head. But as him and his church family meet together around that tree and he teaches the word of God to them and they sing praises to God, do you know? Jesus is with them and it's beautiful. It's a beautiful place to be. As we move forward, we have to continue to look through the lens of Christ. We need to remember that it is him who we praise as we gather for church. It is him who accepts the rich, the poor, the high, the low. Not us, usually. We're not good at that. But Jesus is. It's him that as we walk through the valley of Baca together, through the dryness of life and the difficulty of life, what makes it spring and still flow? Jesus. And nothing else. So look how the psalmist continues in verses 10. And then I'll read 11. He says, for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Now, I gotta be honest. I've always looked at this verse and thought, yeah, right. I've always questioned this verse. Is it really better? You're telling me it's better that the psalmist really felt this way, to be the, low, the lowest of low in the house of God rather than to be the highest of high somewhere else. I remember we used to have a pastor here at this church. Some of you might remember, some of you might not. But he used to say, I would rather be here than anywhere else this morning. And I used to think, really? Anywhere else? I could think of a lot of places I would rather be. Are you serious? Am I alone in this? I don't know. I'm sure every teen is agreeing with me. And so this has always baffled me, this verse. Yet as the psalmist walks through this progression of who God is, praying for the anointed one, and we as the New Testament church can look and see that how Jesus has filled all of this and fulfilled it and fulfilled every single jot and tittle of it. We see the truth of it. That because of Christ, there is nothing better than to be in his courts. There's 
There's no better place to be than to be a part of the house of God, even if that means I have to be the lowest of low in the house of God. That is much better than if my name was plastered all over TV, all over social media, and everybody was giving me praise, not for negativity, but was giving me praise over and over and over again. The psalmist says, I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of God than anything anywhere else. While this is a struggle for us, it should be true of us. The world has nothing better to offer to us than what Christ has offered us, than what Christ has given us. This goes back to what we talked about last week. Yes, there are things out there that are good, but nothing compares to the love of Christ. Remember Matthew chapter 20, verse 16, when Jesus would say, so the last will be first and the first will be last. You remember him saying that? There's a connection here with what the psalmist is saying. I'd rather be last in this world. I don't care about the things that this world has to offer. Just I want to be a part of the house of God because that means then I'm, I'm first. Because he's loved me, he's called me, he's saved me. So this is what I want to be. And again, just like last week, we know this is true. You know this verse, the last will be first and the first will be last. I'm sure you've quoted it at some time when someone beat you in a race or they beat you in some event. You've tried to humble them in some way, even though you're the loser. You say, oh, yeah, but one day I'll be first. Well, not in this race. You're always gonna be slow. That would have been my response back. But you probably quoted this verse. In fact, I heard this verse being preached on TV this morning. Wrongly, it was a horrible sermon, but it was being talked about. Do we really think that, though? Do we really live our life in that way? Lord, better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. Really? Is that your goal in life? Do you really think that? Lord, I would rather be the doorkeeper of your house, which means I don't get in very far. I'm just at the door letting people in. They're going in. They're enjoying everything. I'm just at the door. I would rather do that than have all the riches of this world. Really? Is that true? Do we really live our life this way? Do we really feel that way when we get to approach God in our personal devotion time? God, I've longed for this moment since last yesterday morning. I've longed to read your word again. On Sundays, God, I've longed to be with the people of God singing your praises again. I'd rather be here than anywhere else. Oh, football season's happening. Oh, the tide is changing in Michigan and it's gonna be fall and it's so beautiful and the orchards and... I'd rather be with the people of God that you put me with to worship you. Is this really the cry out that we do to God. The psalmist goes on after verse 10 to remind us in verse 11 of why the house of the Lord is the best place to be. It says, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. I was reading, when I was reading this 
when the psalmist said the Lord is like a, a son, that, that really jumped out at me, uh, just stuck out there. You think about the son and how the son is needed for life, isn't it? For life to happen, we have to have the son. It's what helps plants grow. It even gives us nutrients, gives us stuff that we need. Or if you think about that, just the sun shows us the way to go. It gives us light so we know where to walk. How the sun can bring joy in the midst of such sadness even at times. You know that feeling in Michigan? It's like March. It's been gray for a really long time, about a month and a half at this point. We're coming at it soon. But you walk onto like that back patio maybe that you have, like a three-season room or somebody's house, and God bless us with a, a sunny day in March. It's still like 20 degrees outside or 30 degrees outside. But do you know that feeling? You walk onto that back patio and you just, you feel the sun. And you're like, oh, how I've missed you. You just feel the warmth of it. My parents have that spot in their house. They, they like have a little sliding door and then just a real small area where you take your shoes off and then you walk into another door to get in the house. And that pet, you just, you just feel the, the sun. And it's so warm. It's just so refreshing. It makes you feel at home, kinda. And you think, that's exactly what I needed. This is how the psalmist describes the Lord. The Lord God is a son to us, not just a son, but also a, a shield. The Lord is our protection. Remember, this is the connection here to the first verse. The psalmist called him the Lord of hosts, the God of all the armies, the heavenly armies, the one who cannot be destroyed, the one who cannot be defeated. This is our God. This is his house that we get to be a part of, the church. And so he protects us. He cares for us. And in his house is complete protection. Just like those sparrows feeling safe in the crevices of the temple, so we, insignificant in this world. Really, Tim, me, I'm insignificant in this world. If I pass away, there's some people who'd know. But most people will never know my name. They'll never know who I am. And on the day that I die, to most people, it's just like another sparrow. But not to my God. My God loved me enough to give me a home. So that I'm not just some worthless sparrow on my own, just dying and gone. Who cares? No. Oh, no. For me, my God has called my name and he protects me. He's my son and he's my shield who's allowed me to be a part of his family and allowed me to be a part of this church family that he's placed me in so that you guys can care for me, so that I can care for you, so that you guys can love me, so that I can love you. He's given us a home and he protects us. You see the bank maybe would take this building away or fire could take this building away could take all these different things that we like to walk into, but here's just the truth of the matter. It can't take away our home, because you're my home. Together, 
We make the church. This building is not a church. Again, that's something we say, but it's true. This is drywall, this cement. If I'm being honest, this mold that's probably under here. This ain't our home. God lives within us and he's given us a home that has complete protection. Nobody can separate us from the love of our father. No one. And so the psalmist ends, verse 12, again, crying out to God, the Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. The psalmist ends with the understanding that the only true way to be blessed is by trusting in the Lord. That's what he says. This promise isn't for everybody. It's for those who trust in the Lord. That is it. This is the logic. You see, this world seems to go opposite of the logic that we've trusted in in Christ, but we know it's truth. 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. As we go through this life and we go through troubles and we tell our friends and we tell our coworkers, they know that we're going through difficult times, but we say things like, but listen, I'm trusting in the Lord during these times. They look at us like, well, why don't you just have a rabbit's foot? Why don't you just trust a lucky coin? I mean, to them, it's the same thing. That's foolishness. To those of us who've been saved, we know that it's the power of God. It's the truth. So as we've journeyed through some of these psalms together, I hope that you've seen the truth of who we are in Christ. Again and again, these psalms have reminded us that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the king who reigns, and he reigns in Zion, the city of God, who we saw as the church. It's us. And we are his people. We've been saved by his grace. And because of that, we have the privilege to rest in him forever in his presence forever. And so while on this earth, church family, we worship him together in spirit and in truth. We give of him our life, at least we should, each and every day. We serve him and we try to honor him and we do all this with what? Looking forward to the day when we will see him in glory forever to when we really will be able to be gathered together as the whole church family, not just Monroe Missionary Baptist Church and those who've been saved and planted here, but all the church, all of our family, all of our brothers and sisters together, praising God eternally, without sin, without corruption, without fear of being trampled or mocked or being made fun of or shot or killed. No, none of that because we'll be in complete protection forever. And as we gather on Sunday, we get a little taste of that. And we should long for that. We should desire that. I hope you're thankful. I know I'm very thankful that while our worship on Sunday mornings isn't flashy, there's times I'm like, that was, that was junk. But most of the time, I look around, I'm so thankful that God has put us together. And when we're singing these songs and we're looking at the words on the screen, that we can say, 
God, this is who you are. And I worship you. I praise you, and I'm not alone. I get to praise you with all these people in this room. And I get to live my life with these people that you've called me to, who love me, who care for me, and I have the privilege of loving them. Such a blessing as a pastor. I've been hearing this a lot lately from people in our congregation. They text me or they call me and they say, I just want you to know the church has done a really good job of taking care of me lately. As you know, I've been down and out or I've been sick or this has been happening in our family. I want you to know so many of our church family has texted me, has called me. Some of them have made me dinner. Some of them have sent me letters. And they say, I want you to know I've been taken care of well by the church family. Because it's a testament to the goodness of God. That doesn't happen outside of the church very much. But that's what we're called to do, and that's what we do, and we do that under the protection of our son and our shield, our Savior Jesus. So let's keep pushing forward in that. Let's keep loving each other, and as we love each other well, we serve him faithfully and love him well. This is the goodness of our Savior. Let's bow together. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that when you saved us, you didn't put us by ourselves. Because God, I know that when I get by myself, I can get so down. I can be so hard on myself. I can, I can just be so out of it. I can be so selfish that I'm not focused on the things I should be focused on. God, I'm, I'm thankful that while this psalmist here is writing when they're away in captivity or in some sort of struggle, God, I'm thankful I don't, I don't have that. God, what once held me captive, sin in my life, you have broken those chains and freed me in Christ. And so God, now you allow me along with others who you saved to gather together to worship you in the house of God. And God, I apologize and seek forgiveness for how often I take that for granted. It's a shame to think of how often I take that for granted. But God, help me like this psalmist to find the beauty of being with the people of God, worshiping you. God, I'm thankful that it's not about a building. It's not about some structure. But it's about the people that you've gathered together to worship your name under the banner of Christ. God, help us as a church family here to be faithful to that day in and day out. Help us to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, but to realize our need to worship you God, not just our need, give us the same desire of this psalmist to long each day to be together again to praise the name of our Savior, Jesus. God, we want to be faithful to you in everything we say and do, so help us with that. God, this morning, no doubt, there's people here who are not a part of the family of God. Oh, they're sitting here this morning. They're in the pew. They heard the songs. They've heard the sermon, but yet they're still not your child. God, I pray that you'd open their eyes to the truth to see that these promises that are found in Christ are only found in him. And God, I pray that they would trust in him with everything, that you would save them, that you would redeem them, that you would break them from their chains and shackles of sin, shame, and guilt, and free them by the blood of Christ.
God, I pray that as we sing now, we would respond to your word how we should. Help us to honor you in our singing. We ask now in Christ's name, amen.